Calling all Swifties and champions of change, Like a Girl Media is rolling out the red carpet for you with our Thrive Like a Girl contest. We're all about celebrating powerful women leaders who inspire us to dream big and push boundaries. And who embodies that spirit more than Taylor Swift herself? Here's your chance to see her live in concert. We're giving away two tickets to Taylor Swift's show in London on Saturday, June 22nd. Imagine being part of the magic, all thanks to Like a Girl Media. Entering is easy. Subscribe, share, and show us which episodes inspired you the most. Visit our website or check our social media for all the details. Don't just dream it, be it. Thrive like a girl and make this summer unforgettable. Contest opens globally. Voidware prohibited. Must be 18 or older to enter. No purchase necessary. Subscribe and share with hashtag thrive like a girl and tag us at like a girl underscore media for entry. Unlimited entries means unlimited chances. Winner chosen at random after contest closes May 20th, 2024. We'll be notified via DM. Make sure your profiles are not private. Check full rules on our site. This is your shot to see Taylor Swift live. Don't miss it. Support for this episode is brought to you by Chirpy Bird Health IT Consulting. The 2020 MIPS Manual is out now on Amazon, and it's a great resource for practice administrators and clinicians who need to keep up with the changing healthcare laws. Welcome to the Hit Like a Girl podcast, where with each episode, we hear from different women experts in the health IT industry. We like to hear about what makes them tick, how they overcome challenges, work they're proud of, advice they would give to other women in health IT, and much more. I'm Joy Rios. And I'm Robin Roberts. Today, we're sharing the conversation we had with Dr. Jordana Haber, who's an emergency physician at University of Nevada, Las Vegas. We learned a lot from her and think you will too. So let's get started. Today we are joined by Jordana Haber. Thank you very much for taking the time to talk with us. We liken healthcare and the health IT space to this thousand piece puzzle that it can be very complicated and we all hold an individual piece of it. So we are excited to kind of hear about your piece, Jordana, if you could maybe take a moment to introduce yourself and share with us like how you contribute into this space. Thank you so much for having me. So I'm an emergency physician, UMC in Las Vegas, where I serve as the director of clinical education and simulation for our emergency medicine residency program. And I'm also the director for our sexual assault and strangulation nurse examiner program. I would say my path to medicine was not straightforward at all. When I was a kid, I did not say I wanted to be a doctor. I was though always inspired and motivated by women I saw and learned about who are making big changes and standing up for something and also pursuing what they were passionate about. And I knew really at an early age that I had that drive in me too. So through this meandering path, I found medicine. And looking back, it does seem pretty natural and I would say the perfect fit for me, but it did take some trial and error to get here. I had a love for understanding science. I found I didn't really like being in a lab all day. And I really loved learning about people and hearing their stories. So ultimately, my choice to pursue a career in medicine was based on this desire for challenge and personal growth and to seek meaning and also to better understand the human experience. So through this zigzagging path, I found myself fascinating and really feeling right at home in the emergency room. I love that the ER is the entrance to the hospital and the ambulance doors are always opening so you can get a glimpse to the outside world. We care for everyone and we don't turn anyone away. 
And what I find to be the biggest privilege of being an ER doctor is that we get to care for patients of all walks of life. This is what I find extremely humbling. And I think ER doctors have a unique insight into the human experience because of our work. And I see that this is getting a lot of attention recently in this time of COVID. Every news source, every blog kind of has a story about a frontline health worker or a patient. And what we see is that our stories, the stories of healthcare workers, our patients, the public, are all deeply connected. And sharing our stories matters in terms of being able to grasp the gravity of this moment, to understand it, and to nourish a collective empathy. So after finishing my emergency medicine training, I decided I was going to do a fellowship in medical education. And this was... They were actually just starting to spring up. There weren't many of them at the time that I was looking for this. And why I wanted to do this was I wanted to focus on narrative medicine and have time to dedicate to that. And at this time, narrative medicine did not have much of a presence in emergency medicine, which really tends to be very fast-paced and procedure-oriented specialty. And I trained in emergency medicine at Lincoln in the South Bronx, which is known to be one of the busiest emergency departments. So clearly, this was not always the priority was focus on narrative medicine, where this department was really this fast-paced, procedure-oriented type of training that you would think is typical of emergency medicine. But what I found in my training was that I was most drawn to the stories of emergency medicine. And that's also really why I went into medicine and emergency medicine in the first place. And I was also fascinated by the narratives of the South Bronx community where I was training, as well as the stories of those of us who were training there and working there. So a little bit about narrative medicine. This is the idea of focusing on each patient's unique story and also the stories of the healthcare providers. And I hope that in my work as an educator, I can bring to light the meaning of each shift and each patient's story through this focus on narrative medicine. I really want to ask you some about your experience with in exactly what you're talking about. So the narrative and also some of the trauma support that you provide. Can you share with us a little bit how that shows up in your day-to-day work? What are some of obviously HIPAA compliant ways of kind of sharing just a little bit about what you see on a regular basis? HIPAA becomes more of an issue when we're talking about publishing any articles with patients. And if you talk to people who write often about patient stories, a name that comes to mind is Oliver Sacks. He actually wrote about this in his memoir book of how difficult that sometimes was. You know, I think the more that we can get patients to give consent to for us to share their stories, uh, that should always be um, the direction that we take in this field of narrative medicine. But more often, what I'm doing with my residents and my students is trying to be an example for taking the time to consider your patient's unique story. So it's less about necessarily bringing that story to the public, like in a publication or in a book, but more just on our everyday interactions when I'm working with a student. I'm recognizing maybe some of the struggles of our patients. So that's something I became really aware of, especially working in the South Bronx where we care for such an underserved population. And a lot of the doctors and resident physicians, we came from a more privileged background as that usually is the case when you look at that population of of physicians or healthcare workers. So for us to kind of learn these new narratives, maybe their new narratives of a more underserved group of people that we're caring for, I think is just so important if we're to give 
good care to these patients. Can you talk to us about maybe how narrative medicine shows up when, how does narrative medicine show up when you're not just dealing with patients, but when you're dealing with your clinical peers? Yeah, so that's a great question. And that's actually, I think, one of what I feel is like my drive in my medical practice and my career as an educator. I'm often asked to give lectures for my department, for my residents. And this could be on, you know, a hard science topic or on any type of medical etiology. But I always try to bring it back to an actual patient story. And in that kind of intertwine, maybe some of the other factors that play into our patient story, despite their necessarily just their disease or their illness, but actually what's going around in their life or how do they perceive health care that they're receiving. Considering the timing that we're in, in the world of our COVID pandemic, how are you seeing that change now? Because I would imagine that people's stories are very unique, but they're also experiencing stuff that is perhaps different than what they were, or maybe maybe just completely amplified to compared to what they were experiencing even just six months ago. What I've kind of been enjoying, if you can enjoy anything about this moment, is that I think we're seeing a lot more stories make their way into the general news. And that's the patient stories, the healthcare worker stories. And I think we're feeling more connected in that way, especially because no one seems to be immune from COVID, right? So we're finding even our healthcare workers are probably the most scared contracting this virus. And so there's little space between our patient stories and our own stories. In a way, I do see that being amplified. And I think that's a good thing. And I hope that that's something we can begin to recognize the importance of narratives. And it's a way that this allows us to really understand an illness or a disease process. So like many healthcare workers, like we didn't know, we didn't have a lot of information about coronavirus. We didn't know what to expect. And we're kind of learning this as it unravels. And that I think we're learning the most from listening to our patients. You know, one thing that shows up for me over and over again, and it's it's shown up in different conversations that, you know, Robin and I have been part of just over the course of the last couple of months. And especially as this pandemic is growing, it's sometimes hard to keep that story or those stories in the front of our mind as the numbers keep getting bigger and bigger. Like it's one of those things where it's just like, there's so many statistics and you're just like, how do we make these things personal and personable and relatable? And I know that we're all kind of in different parts of the country or different parts of the world and you know, having slightly different experiences. And when we see the news and see that there's just, you know, the statistics out there, it's hard to really make it tangible sometimes if it's not affecting you directly. I imagine that you have plenty of insight into that, not just with COVID, but with other aspects of healthcare and things that you see in the emergency room. Is there anything that you've learned along your journey that helps pull that information out and really like either from for the doctors or healthcare professionals or even just in some of the education that you provide kind of helping to really make the consequences and the issues that we're all facing just feel relatable and real and tangible. Just makes me think that one of my interests in going into medical education was to really better understand what I had just gone through in terms of medical school and residency training. And there felt like there were just some voids or 
And also, in addition, I didn't always like the person I was becoming uh, during this process. And so in my medical education studies, what I began to read a lot about was this concept of empathy, which you know we, we use a lot in medicine that we want compassionate doctors, we want empathetic doctors, and we do, get, we do have some empathy training. But what it's found is that when students enter their third year of training, so their first two years is spent traditionally on like hard science classes, and then the third year, they go into the medical wards. And what studies have found is that empathy drops during that third year. So that's, this is a time when you'd actually expect empathy to go up. They're, the students are finally doing what they had always wanted to do, caring for patients. So what happens here? And what these studies and theories demonstrate is that likely what's happening is that students kind of get a reality check of what medicine is really about. That there is a disconnect between kind of what we're taught in the classroom and what we actually see on the medical wards. And that's kind of like the house of God, you know, that you're getting indoctrinated into this medical culture that isn't always the best environment or the type of doctors that we necessarily want to be taking care of us. It's a culture. And what I would like to do is be part of kind of a, a culture change that we make this culture more positive. And what I mean by that is that in our culture, there's a sense that it's important to disconnect and not feel in order to just do the work and take care of your patients. And I never found that that worked for me or was the type of doctor that I wanted to become. That, you know, I spoke earlier how I went into medicine because I wanted to understand the human experience. I also wanted to learn about myself. What I look to do is try to create a place where we allow ourselves to feel and we allow ourselves to connect with our patients. You know, we were, as an emergency room physician, the urgency, the level of trauma or impact that some of the things that walk through the door can have, you know, from where are you trained to where you are today on a daily basis. I've got to imagine that's pretty important. We spoke with a physician who's a published author and basically through his own trials and tribulations, one of the things at the end of the book is that he couldn't harden himself to this anymore. And over the years and decades of doing this, he ended up using empathy and mindfulness mm-hmm. as a way to reconcile a lot of that pressure. Does that ever show up for you in that way? And how do you begin to even, when you talk medical education, I mean, how the heck do you teach something like that? So this has actually been my focus over the last few years, I guess, since I started my fellowship. And I would say it's really been a trial and error. Like I found I've done things that didn't always resonate with my learners. And sometimes that's heartbreaking because maybe what I realized, we all learn differently, right? And what I've learned is that I'm kind of this experiential learner and I'm very reflective. So I love to journal. I love to write. I love to think deeply about my cases, but that's not always what works for everyone. And that's the same for meditation. It's I'm working on my own meditation practice, actually. And I do know I struggle sometimes to make it consistent. And I think it's also important to recognize that it's challenging even to be mindful always and compassionate all the time in the emergency room, that it's definitely a challenging place to work. There's many distractions and really difficult situations. And our nerves, our patients are often challenged. And I am far from immune to these things. But I can say, looking back and watching my own growth over the last five to 10 years is that I have developed a greater patience and greater empathy and also enjoyment for my work by really implementing 
a type of mindful practice and reflective practice and and honoring that practice. You know, that's definitely something that the world needs at this time. So thank you for the work that you're doing and showing up in that way. That's just something that speaks loudly to me right now. I just keep considering just like how we really need to be thinking about each other's health and the health of our communities and our neighbors. And even if, you know, I'll stop there. Hey guys, sorry to interrupt, but we wanted to let you know about a way you can support Hit Like a Girl podcast directly. We've partnered with patreon.com, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com, as a way for us to connect with our listeners and fans in a direct way and ask them to support us so we can continue creating more great content like this episode you're listening to. Patreon.com is not so much of a one-time contribution, but more like a subscription to provide support to independent creators like us. Patrons who pledge even just $2 a month give us the stability we need to continue producing podcast episodes. In return for your patronage, we're offering virtual high fives, personalized thank you notes, and even shout outs on our episodes. When you become a patron of Hit Like a Girl podcast, you're supporting our channel directly, so we won't be making podcast episodes for some viral audience or for ads. We're making them for you, our listeners. This allows us to focus on topics related to women, healthcare, and technology. With your support on patreon.com, we're able to spend that time having meaningful conversations and doing more great work that can positively impact the lives of other women in healthcare and tech. So join us on patreon.com and let's make something amazing together. One question that we ask all of our guests is really try like putting on their magical hat. And if you, you know, considering all of the challenges and obstacles that you have seen in your world, if you were able to take all of those challenges and obstacles away, what would you solve in healthcare and health IT or health IT? And can you tell us why? You know, I think training in the South Bronx and even now I'm working in more of an urban setting. The thing that most comes to mind is what I see as the greatest problem in our healthcare system are the health disparities. And now we're seeing that these are even magnified by this pandemic that we're in. And these are things that we witness every day in the emergency department. And, you know, I think I come back to specific stories that I see where it's obvious how these health disparities affect outcomes for my patients. And it's, it's truly heartbreaking. There's basically no illness that is immune from already existing health disparities that we face in this country. And more recently, I took on this role as the director of our sexual assault and strangulation nurse examiner program. And this to me has also highlighted the health disparities and gender biases that, that affect outcomes in medicine. So what we know from this is that one out of three women experience intimate partner violence in her lifetime, and that one of 10 of these will experience strangulation, and that these are often underreported. And these patients really struggle to get the resources that they need. And what I think this comes down to is an issue of credibility when we are speaking with about certain patients due to biases that many of us don't even know that we have, but are part of us because of the culture that we live in. So if I could fix one thing in healthcare, it would be to, you know, magically remove these health disparities, which obviously is not something you can magically do. But, you know, I look to what skills I have and I think that is my expertise kind of in this narrative medicine training. And I hope to honor 
patient stories and bring these stories to light that I think are not heard often enough. And to me, that does seem like it is an important part of this healthcare picture, this complex picture that we have and can maybe move the needle and bring some changes in the future. I was going to ask you about the strangulation piece or the included in the title. Is there anything like that is something I'm pretty blind to. Is there are there any other statistics or insights that you can share around that piece because I find it really interesting that it's actually included in the sexual assault and strangulation part of your role. Yeah, so I was it's almost like this was one of those roles that it got passed down on to me and I was asked to take on as a medical director for this role because the person before me was retiring. And so our sexual assault nurse examiner, which I think is the more common term, actually is specialized in an expert in nationally in strangulation. And so I've actually learned everything from her. This has also been new to me. And it made me realize, wow, if this is new to me, it must be new to a lot of people out there of just the magnitude of strangulation that, that we see nationally and really the morbidity and mortality related to strangulation. So in emergency medicine, we're trained to focus on our most high-risk patients. And the fact that this has gotten what I think very little attention when we have such a large population who is at risk for strangulation and just made me realize how much more attention that this needs. And I usually like to highlight it as that these are very high-risk patients and they need it needs more attention. I hear you say high-risk patients, but the statistic is also pretty remarkable. That in and of itself, and I think added on to it, and I, I agree with Joy, just I think have a level of ignorance about this. So I appreciate you sharing more, but I also think your wish about wanting to help overcome these disparities when it's done in a way that dovetails with the background of your training in narrative medicine. I feel like the stories the parts that connect the human experience are what make people stand up and listen. It's what makes something memorable and ultimately what helps catalyze change. And so, Dr. Haber, tell us in a world and in an industry that changes every day, sometimes every hour, how the heck do you keep up in your own specialty clinically and just on the pulse of all things healthcare? What are you reading? I would say I read a lot of books that sometimes mm-hmm. are connected to medicine, but I mean, even fiction books. So, I read my medical journals. I try to keep up with those. But what I think has really shaped the doctor that I am are books that are novels and beautifully written. So the book that I read right before I started medical school, it was actually a book. I went to my local library. I was living at home with my parents, like in between college and medical school, where I had a lot more free time than I was used to. And I used to bike every day to the library and sit there and search through books. And just, I love the idea that I could read any book that I wanted. It wasn't assigned to me. So I remember stumbling upon this book called A Few Short Notes on Tropical Butterflies. And the cover was just so beautiful. It looked kind of antique. And I was just so intrigued by this book. And it was written by John Murray and had just come out at the time. It was featured kind of on a a special shelf on our library. And I opened it and realized that the author, John Murray, was a physician. And this just, I took this as kind of a sign that I'm on the right path at going to medical school. I think I had some, you know, I'd waver back and forth with whether, is this really, what am I setting myself up for doing this? But picking up that book, I took as a sign that I am on the right path. And so this book is a collection of short stories that they're fiction, but they are based on 
part of his own narratives and, and stories that he had in his life. Um, he had traveled to multiple places, including India. And I just loved how medicine not only exposed him to these unique stories of humanity, but also brought him to such fascinating places in the world. So that was a book that comes to mind. Other books that I think have shaped my career since have been uh, Being Mortal, which talks about how we treat death and uh, dying with dignity. And I think that's really changed the way I care for patients, especially at the end of their life. Another book that I love is How Doctors Feel by Danielle Ofri. And I think this is kind of touches on what I feel very passionately about and is creating a space to feel in medicine and to really talk about our experiences being healthcare workers and also honor our patient stories. And so one story that I love in that book is that Danielle Ofri decides on her round, when she's rounding with her residents, she picks a case that is a chronic drug user and ask her students, and she writes in the book, you know, she didn't know how this was actually going to play out or go, but it ended up being successful. And that also reminds me that I've had some failures along the way, but that's okay that we need to kind of keep trying this. But she asked her students to talk to this drug user who had been what's called a frequent flyer. He's kind of known to the wards that these students ask him when, if he can remember when he first realized that he was addicted. And so I think to the student's surprise, this patient is able to distinctly recall that moment and gives this story that makes the students realize that you know this is a human being just like us and we're not so different than the patients that we care for. And these are just little ways I think that we can really develop empathy in our students and our residents. And I think that's something that they'll take with them when they develop their own practice and when they become attendings and leaders in the healthcare world. That's so important. Thank you for sharing all of those. We'll make sure that they are included in the show notes so people can actually check those books out of their libraries as well. Dr. Haber, if folks want to get in touch with you, if they want to maybe learn from you, what would be the best way? Do you have socials, handles? You know, what's your preferred method of contact? I use Twitter often. And so my handle on Twitter is Jordana Haber. Dr. Haber, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. Thank you so much for having me and for the work you guys are doing. And thank you for listening to the Hit Like a Girl podcast. If you want to know more about us or this guest, check out our website at hitlikeagirlpod.com. While you're at it, if you found value in this episode, we'd appreciate a ratings on iTunes or simply tell a friend. You can also connect with us on Twitter or Instagram at the handle hitlikeagirlpod. Thanks again. See you soon. Thank you to Chirpy Bird Health IT Consulting. You can find out more about them at www.chirpybirdinc.com.